All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. authority of the Holy See were visibly displayed in majestic buildings, imperishable memorials, and witnesses seemingly planted by the hand of God himself, belief would grow. Those were the dying words of Pope V, who mourned the decay of Rome. A series of moribund villages surrounded by grassy wooded mounds from which the wreckage of the pagan past stood out. Squats for beggars, shelter for farm animals. Within a generation, Rome was to be changed. So too was the whole of Christendom. The Renaissance had begun. Nicholas's words were more than a lament. They were a manifesto. He had already started the building of St. Peter's. He had established the magnificent Vatican Library. Others would complete it. But in the grandeur there is another picture. It evokes images of a Hollywood spectacular all decadence and drag. Renaissance Rome is reminiscent of Nixon's Washington, a city of expense account whores, political graft where everything and everyone had a price, where nothing and nobody could be trusted. The popes set the tone. Alexander VI flaunting a young and nubile mistress in the Vatican, poisoning his cardinals aggrandizing his nine illegitimate sons and daughters. His daughter Lucrezia, the pawn in a series of loveless dynastic marriages arranged by her father, the Pope. His Cesare, the model for Machiavelli's prince who carved a personal empire out of the lands of the church, aided and abetted by his father.
the Swiss Guards. Their uniforms, designed by Michelangelo, are the ceremonial remnants of the lethal mercenary armies Pope Julius II recruited for his wars. A lifelong rival of Alexander VI, he was, beneath this holy exterior, a ferocious and enthusiastic warrior, reclaiming for the church the land stolen by Alexander and his family. Leo X, a cleric at seven, cardinal at thirteen, said after his election, God has given the papacy, let us enjoy it. And enjoy he did. A lavish patron of every kind of display, his sumptuous feasts were notorious. One meal, described by a Venetian ambassador, had 65 courses, each of three different dishes. His stables were an elaborate zoo, which included an albino elephant presented by the King of Portugal. Poets, jugglers and jesters filled his court. He left the papacy bankrupt. How could such men sit upon the chair of Peter? The papal court was full of career clerics who could expect to be cardinals without ever having to be ordained. And the whole atmosphere of the papal court was that of a secular centre of learning, of political administration, of legal administration. The clergy of the Roman Curia were lawyers, um, writers, historians. Some of them were pious, but most were simply career clergy. And it's from those men that the cardinals were recruited, and it's from the cardinals that the popes were recruited. Despite his many wars, Julius II found the money to pull down the old St. Peter's and to commission a series of artistic giants, from Bramante and Raphael to Michelangelo, to raise a triumphant new monument to papal grandeur. This was the age of humanism, a period of rediscovered classical learning, the flower of creativity in painting, sculpture and architecture. designed to provide a setting for papal elections and for meetings and worship of the 200 clerics who, with the Pope, formed the papal chapel. It's not simply pious decoration that was created here. In the frescoes are worked out ideological statements laden with papal symbolism. In this fresco, Christ consigns the keys to Peter by Perugino, the papal overtones are obvious. They are also subtle. Christ hands the golden key of spiritual authority to Peter. Suspended from it, the base metal key of temporal power. The Pope, like Christ, is supreme in both spheres. If anyone doubts the enduring religious depth of Renaissance Rome, 
then look at the elaborate humanist programme of imagery here. Michelangelo's masterpiece on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Commissioned, of course, by the Pope. This was art which preached as well as delighted the senses. The splendour of idealised human flesh was pressed into service. Christianity was shown as the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy and all that was best in human history and culture. And at the heart of Christianity to celebrate the greatness of the papacy. Rome had become the artistic centre of the world. It became also the centre for learning. The Vatican Library, refounded by Pope Nicholas V, became the greatest in Europe. It still is. A priceless repository of Christian and pagan tradition. Nicholas was determined, in his words, to create for the common convenience of the learned a library of all books, both in Latin and in Greek, that is worthy of the popes and the apostolic see. Christian universities were in a state of change and uncertainty. Martin V, the Pope elected to end the Great Schism in the early 15th century, published the constitution for the University of Salamanca in Spain. He profoundly distrusted Renaissance learning, especially its obsession with pagan authors. He was right to be suspicious. Many of the new thinkers were quite explicitly anti-papal. The new scholarship extended to the roots of Christian faith. Among the rediscovered Greek classics were the long-forgotten works of Eastern fathers of the churches. The narrow theological certitude of the late Middle Ages began to crack. Bishops, cardinals and popes were enthusiasts, not opponents of new learning. From the late 15th century, the invention of movable types meant that ideas became portable. The man traditionally associated with the invention of the printing press is Johannes Gutenberg of Mainz. It is not surprising that it was the Bible, which now carries his name, which was the first printed book in Europe. No longer confined to monasteries or cathedral libraries, the book and the world of thought which books made possible moved out into the marketplace. No one made more use of the presses than the greatest scholar of the age, Desiderus Erasmus, the bastard son of a priest raised in a monastic school. A master of eloquent Latin and Greek, he edited the first printed edition of many of the greatest writers of the early church. But this was no dry-as-dust scholar buried in his books. He was also the wittiest satirist of the age. In The Praise of Folly, he lashed the superstitions of ignorant people and the corruptions of the clergy.
he detested Julius II. The very idea of a warrior priest was an abomination. After Julius's death, Erasmus published anonymously Julius Exclusus, in which the bloodthirsty Pope is refused entrance to heaven by St. Peter. Erasmus's satire drew blood, but his scholarship cut deeper. He issued an edition of the Greek New Testament with a modern Latin translation, designed to make plain the meaning of the text. This version exposed the mistranslations on which some of the most venerated doctrines of the Middle Ages had been based. All over Europe, earnest men studied Erasmus's New Testament and began to doubt. One of Erasmus's contemporaries was Martin Luther. He was one of the doubters. He was a professor of Old Testament in an obscure German university at Wittenberg. A devout monk, he had anguished over his own sinfulness and cowered before the anger of a righteous God. Release came from a phrase by St. Paul, the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation, Luther concluded, came from simple trust in God. This one insight turned the whole system of the medieval church upon its head. If faith alone saved, the paraphernalia of popular religion was so much junk. Relics, indulgences, a waste of time, or more, a deadly delusion. But in 1517, no one in Germany could avoid the question of relics and indulgences. The Archbishop of Mainz was short of money. Having bought his archbishopric, he was badly in debt. The Pope, too, needed cash for the rebuilding of St. Peter's. An indulgence was proclaimed, half the proceeds to go to the Archbishop, half to the Pope. Devout offerings would speed the souls of loved ones to heaven. As the indulgence seller's jingle went, place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. The Archbishop had his own immense lucrative exhibition of indulgence relics, 9,000 of them. The bodies of countless saints, a bone of the patriarch Isaac, a jar full of manna, a twig from the burning bush, Luther's employer, the Elector of Saxony, had his own right collection of relics. He forbade the sale of St. Peter's indulgence across the river into his territory. Luther's attack on the indulgences was more than loyalty to his patron. For him, the St. Peter's indulgence was a blasphemous contrick. He denounced indulgences as a pious racket. He drew up his objections in the form of propositions and nailed them on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. 
Within months, the printing presses had spread his protest across Germany and beyond. All over Germany, men and women rallied to his message and the radical simplification of religious life that it brought. Leo X tried to have Luther silenced by his religious superiors, but he made no attempt to correct the abuses Luther had targeted. In Rome, no one grasped the seriousness of the situation. Pamphlets and posters, a stream of crude but effective anti-papal propaganda widened the gulf. While Rome danced and delayed, the Catholic Church in Germany fell apart. The Protestant Reformation had begun and northern Germany lost to the popes. Luther's appeal was not only spiritual. Protestantism meant the confiscation of church property. To the land-hungry princes of Germany, this was irresistible. In droves, they joined the reformed cause and helped themselves to the church's wealth. But the emperor, Charles V, was a devout Catholic. Germany descended into a murderous war of religion. The emperor ruled much of northern Italy in the spirit of medieval emperors and dominated the church there. Charles was the champion of Catholicism, but he was also at odds with the Pope. Pope Clement VII was a member of the Medici family, hereditary rulers of Florence. As a Pope and as a Florentine, he resented Charles's Italian policies. In 1527, an imperial army marched into Italy None of the troops had been paid for months, and many of them were rabidly anti-papal Lutherans, and in the first week of May invaded Rome. Soldiers rampaged through the city, murdering and raping. Priests were beaten and abused. The Vatican was looted. Luther's name was scrawled across the Raphael paintings in the Pope's private apartments. Horses were stabled in the Vatican library. The Pope fled to the Castel San Angelo, where he was besieged. German troops gathered under his balcony, screaming abuse, threatening to eat him. Reformation was no longer a remote rumour from Germany. It had stalked through the Vatican in mailed boots. The golden bubble of Renaissance was burst. Michelangelo's terrifying last judgement, painted after the sack, contrasts starkly with the sunny opulence of the ceiling which he had painted before.
the sack of Rome had devastating results, even on the remotest edge of Europe. Henry VIII was a devout Catholic and had even won the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope for a skillful book against Luther. But Henry had no son to pass his crown to. He wanted to divorce his Spanish wife, Catherine of Aragon, to marry a young court lady, Anne Boleyn. Only the Pope had the power to annul the marriage, and Henry petitioned Pope Clement VII to do so. The Pope wasn't in a position to give him a divorce, and the reason for that was that he was completely under the thumb of Catherine's nephew, the Emperor Charles V, who had the Pope and Rome firmly in his grasp. So other ways had to be devised of getting a divorce. Henry called Parliament to put pressure on the Pope. He also sought the views of a number of universities who were willing to say that the divorce was justified. He appointed a new Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, and got him to give him a divorce and in order to make sure that no one would appeal to the Pope against Cranmer's decision he got Parliament to pass an act which act in restraint of appeals which forbade any appeals against the divorce to Rome and finally in 1534 he put the coping stone on the whole building by passing the Supremacy Act the act which made Henry supreme head of the Church of England. In the late 1530s, he went further and abolished all the monasteries in his kingdom. The royal officials in charge had instructions to find lurid scandals to justify dissolution. Stories of randy monks, pregnant nuns, religious racketeering piled up. Here, in Tintern Abbey, there were only 13 monks. That was ample reason to close it. The monastic lands were confiscated, the buildings stripped of their valuables, even of the lead on their roofs. All over the country, the same happened. Henry's realm had been lost to the papacy. As more and more of Europe was moving into the Protestant fold, as if in compensation, new worlds of opportunity opened to Catholicism. This was the age of discovery. Columbus had reached America. Explorers from the great maritime nations like Spain and Portugal were pushing back the boundaries of the known world. In these new lands, they encountered ancient civilizations. Civilizations whose temples and complex and bloody ceremonies witnessed to a belief in another world and the power of the supernatural. To Christian Europe, the gods of the Aztecs seemed savage demons. The people who worshipped them were there to be conquered, converted, then plundered and enslaved. Remote in Rome, Pope Paul III affirmed the right of the Indians to liberty and property. The church forced from the conquerors the admission that Indians were human beings, dignified and free. But no words from Rome could prevent the exploitation of the Indian poor. 
The best that missionaries could do was to protect them from slavery and convert them to Christ. The Renaissance popes viewed the discoveries of new lands as God's will. His way of ensuring that new souls would be taken into the true Catholic Church to compensate for the damned souls of those who had turned Protestant. The Church's fight back on the foreign front of Catholicism now turned to the home and European front. The Reformation had caught the Catholic Church unawares. Here at Trent, in the heart of the Alps of northern Italy, a great council was called. It would transform the Church and halt the spread of the Reformation. Improbably, this reforming assembly was summoned by a pope who seemed anything but a reformer. Pope Paul III had achieved wealth, power and a cardinal's hat because his sister was Pope Alexander VI's last mistress. He was himself the father of three illegitimate sons. A lavish patron of the arts, he put Michelangelo in charge of the rebuilding of St. Peter's. But he knew that the Catholic Church must reform or perish. Trent was chosen as a compromise site, an imperial city with an Italian culture and near to Protestant Germany. On both sides of the religious divide, men of goodwill sought reconciliation. But by now, that was not possible. When the council assembled here in 1545, it was hardly representative. Only 31 bishops attended the opening, only one of them from Germany. But as its importance became apparent, so its members swelled. It tackled at once the fundamental theological issues dividing Catholic and Protestant, clarifying, defining, condemning. It also gave a new voice and confidence to the forces fighting for Catholicism. Perhaps the most important of these was a former Spanish soldier, Ignatius Loyola. Converted after a bad war wound, he retrained as a priest and studied in Paris with John Calvin. But Ignatius gathered around him men dedicated to the spread and defense of the faith. In 1540, Paul III approved their rule as the Society of Jesus. The Jesuits became the stormtroopers of the Counter-Reformation. To the three ancient monastic vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, they added a fourth, absolute obedience to the Pope. They used the latest spiritual and educational techniques the old faith in new ways and in a new world. If Ignatius was an innovator, the next Pope, Paul IV, stood for a radically different understanding of reform. As soon as he was elected, he suspended the council indefinitely. A pall of fear fell over Rome and the Italian church.
As a cardinal, he had persuaded Paul III to establish the Index of Forbidden Books. He had also been placed in charge of a new weapon of repression, the Roman Inquisition. Once he became Pope, its activities were stepped up. He is said to have boasted that if his own father was a heretic, he would fetch the wood to burn him. When he died, the population of Rome went wild with joy. Ecstatic mobs rampaged through the streets and the cells of the Inquisition broken open to release the prisoners. The reconstruction of Catholicism began again. The Council of Trent was reconvened. In Trent's last ten years, the shape of the new Catholicism was hammered out. Colleges, called seminaries or seed beds, were established to train new priests. Bishops and priests from now on were to be educated, chaste, resident in their parishes and dioceses. The council was a paper plan. It fell to the popes to implement it, to produce the new catechism last book the council had called for. When, eventually, the council closed its doors, the company left hugging one another in tears of joy. Catholicism in the age of Trent could be sombre and constrained. Popes and bishops now had fig leaves painted over unashamed nakedness of the art commissioned by their Renaissance predecessors. But the practical reforms of Trent itself were daring, positive. The Catholicism of the Counter-Reformation was upbeat and assertive. As its reforms took effect, the Protestantism would be halted and then slowly reversed. The reforms of Trent and the energies of the Counter-Reformation found their centre and their support in the popes. In the renewal of the Catholic Church, all roads eventually led to Rome. Sixtus V was Pope for only five years, but those years distilled the essence of Catholicism after Trent. A stern Franciscan friar, the papal prisons filled up as he cleaned Rome of its prostitutes, pimps and thieves. It was said that there were more criminals' heads displayed on this than there were melons for sale in the markets. But alongside the repression went a host of new beginnings. Today, this famous obelisk dominates St. Peter's Square. It was Sixtus V who moved it from its age-old obscurity in Nero's circus to become a proud symbol of papal power. 
he crowned the pagan monuments of the city with Christian symbols. He reshaped the city, moving classical and Renaissance monuments to grace the new piazzas. was more than a facelift. Rome, and with Rome the papacy and the church, were renewing their youth. New roads cut through the clutter of medieval streets to converge on the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore. Here Sixtus set his tomb at the heart of the city as the papacy now stood at the heart of the church. He had subdued every other power in the church. His cardinals were reduced from independent barons to obedient civil servants. Against all expectation, the papacy had emerged from the trauma of reformation, stronger, more dominant than ever. In the late 16th century, the greatest monarch and the most powerful Catholic in the world lived here, the monastery palace of the Escorial in central Spain. Here, at the epicenter of worldly power, the Catholic religion had a special place. The Habsburg king, Philip II, had inherited a vast empire in Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and in the New World. But although Philip considered himself the most devoted son of the papacy, he rarely consulted it and often defied it. He, was the strong arm of God. Philip II was a product of the Catholicism of the Counter-Reformation, determined to make all his subjects Catholic and to root out heresy and unbelief from all his lands. Protestantism had made few inroads into Spain, but Islam was another matter. The great mosque of Cordoba was built in an age in which Islam was the faith of much of Spain. It was a magnificent emblem of Spain's multicultural past, but in the age of Counter-Reformation, it was an affront to Catholic unity. The last remnants of the proud Spanish traditions of tolerance, where Muslims, Jews and Christians had coexisted, were now set out. The Spanish Inquisition, founded by the Crown, and far more savage than its Roman counterpart, had become the symbol of Philip's Spain. An abiding emblem of intolerance and savagery in the name of the God of Peace.
no instruments of torture were spared. These charnel house props, no doubt exist the horrors, but the intolerance in pursuit of Catholic unity was real enough. A hellhole of torture. Philip was equally ruthless with Protestantism throughout his dominions. Savage Spanish repression in the Netherlands led to rebellion and the birth of Protestant Holland. In 1588, with papal approval, he launched the Armada, an abortive attempt to reconvert England to Catholicism by force. The Armada was a response to the execution of the Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, by her Protestant cousin, Queen Elizabeth. Philip's crusading zeal was financed by the vast wealth of his colonial dominions, and these were expanding. In 1582, a Spanish expedition from America landed here and claimed the islands. They named them after their king, the Philippines. The conquerors brought the Catholicism of the Counter-Reformation with them, five Augustinian friars, members of the same religious order as Martin Luther. The natives were converted to Christ, and the distinctive Filipino Catholicism was born. It is a Catholicism with its own saints, its own intense pieties. This statue is believed to breathe and to work miracles. The conquerors were under direct order Philip to inflict no injustice on the native population, to make use of no violence. The result is that the Philippines today is the only country in Asia with a predominantly Catholic population. This new world, remote from the ancient fears and new hostilities of Europe, Catholicism proceeded by the way of assimilation, not repression, and once again it grew. The physical world was expanding, so too was the world of the mind. The growing demands for navigational skills gave added impetus to the study of stars. Once it had been believed that the Earth was the centre of the universe, but the science of astronomy was changing all that. Nicholas Copernicus's epoch-making treatise, proving that the Earth moved around the Sun, was dedicated to Pope Paul III. The papacy was not disturbed by it. The new science at first looked like a branch of astrology, and the popes, like everyone else, followed the stars. 
Paul III regularly consulted astrologers before making any important decisions. By the early 17th century, however, astronomy had come of age. Galileo Galilei was searching the sky with a brilliant scientific eye and the newly invented telescope. To many, his conclusions were an assault on ancient truth. This was no longer fortune-telling. Galileo was supporting the Copernican theory that the sun was at the centre, not the round earth. Pope Urban VIII was a close friend and supporter of Galileo. In this, uh, Urban was typical of some of the more erudite and learned cardinals and prelates of the first half of the 17th century. Galileo's academic enemies, however, denounced him to the Inquisition. But, protected by the Pope, he was simply warned to keep his nose out of theology. He was given a certificate that he would treat the Copernican theory as theory, not as established truth. The importance of this certificate was that it said that Galileo had not, at that point and at that date, he had not been formally condemned, it was a sort of certificate of good standing, but it did say, it recorded very carefully, that he had been given an official warning in the name of the Pope, the then Pope, that he must not teach or hold as a doctrine the Copernican hypothesis about the world system. Galileo worked on. Warned but undeterred, he continued to search the stars to propound brilliant mathematical theories, all the time still backed by the Pope. But the tide of criticism rose, especially from ultra-Catholic Spain, scandalized at Urban's toleration. Then, in 1632, Galileo published a set of dialogues defending the Copernican theory. His world of science and the ecclesiastic authority of the Pope had been brought into collision. Now, Urban couldn't fail to act because the terms of the Spanish denunciation were that he was soft on heresy. And here, allegedly, was Galileo in formal breach of an earlier clear papal ruling as to what he could and couldn't say in print. And so, though Urban at first tried to divert the business into the hands of a special commission, in the end, as much as anything, to protect his own standing and authority on the question of papal authority and doctrine, in the context of this Spanish attack, he had to allow the ordinary procedures of the Inquisition to investigate what Galileo had allegedly done wrong by publishing this book. And that was the context in which this once very uh, favourable relationship between Galileo and the Pope broke down. Galileo was condemned to prison and ordered to recant. His sentence was later commuted to house arrest. But the incident became a symbol of the conflict between free inquiry and rigid papal authority.
Galileo's condemnation demonstrated the limitations of Baroque Catholicism. Urban's art patronage displayed its splendor and its extravagance. He lavished money on works which would proclaim the greatness of the successors of St. Peter. He commissioned the greatest sculptor and architect of the age, Bernini, to build over the Apostle's tomb this immense baldacchino. Bernini's work, dramatic, gigantic, ebullient, became the unforgettable image of the Baroque papacy. But Bernini's glorification of the chair of Peter was hollow. In this age of emerging nation-states, the papal supremacy it represented was wearing thin. For 30 years, till 1648, religious war raged throughout Central and Eastern Europe, a titanic struggle for the soul of the continent. But under the flag more worldly interests dominated the struggle, France and her allies against Spain and hers. Real politique shoved religious concerns to the margin. In this harsh world, the voice of the popes calling for all the Catholic nations to unite in defense of the faith was ignored. Pope Innocent X issued a solemn bull to condemn and annul the peace treaty of Westphalia which ended the war, his objections were totally ignored. The grandeur of the King of France in his palace of Versailles more than matched the grandeur of the papacy. The growing claims of Catholic monarchs brought the popes eyeball to eyeball in conflict with secular governments. Louis XIV, the Sun King, ruled his dominions with a rod of iron. He ruled the Church of France no less firmly, appointing its bishops, creaming off its revenues, restricting its contact with the Pope. city of the popes was still papal territory. In Louis's hand it became a lever. In 1664 he invaded the city. French pressure on the papacy was relentless as Louis forced the Pope to appoint French cardinals to protect French interests in the Curia. The struggle of Pope and King for control of the church Recall the struggles between papacy and empire in the age of Gregory VII. But now the stakes were higher, as Catholic kings all over Europe labored to tame the church, to use its resources and its clergy as part of the machinery of a centralizing state. In that struggle, the papacy, transcending national interests, was a hindrance and a nuisance. The humiliating reality of papal weakness was revealed in 1773 
when pressure from the four great Catholic powers, Austria, Portugal, Spain and France, forced Pope Clement XIV to dissolve the Jesuit order. The missionary achievements of the Jesuits were legendary. From the Philippines to here in Mexico, they had carried the Christian message. They had also acted as the voice of the oppressed native peoples. In the age of absolute monarchy, that voice had to be silenced, whatever the grandeur of their achievement as missionaries. No one must come between the monarch and his subjects. The destruction of the Jesuits by the Pope they were sworn to obey was the clearest possible proof of the contradiction which lay at the heart of Baroque Catholicism. Catholic Europe might protest its loyalty to the successor of St. Peter, but the kings of Catholic Europe had all but extinguished his power. The papacy was silently fading into oblivion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.